Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. If you're looking for inspiration for your career, if you feel a little stuck or bored with what you're doing right now, or if you're in search of the road less traveled job-wise, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. Last week's podcast with Madeline Black has really hit a chord with a lot of you. So thanks so much to those of you who've been in touch and been so supportive and kind in your words about Madeline and her story. It really emphasized the importance to me of supporting women who wish to come forward in their recovery from rape or abuse. And I think it was a really important story to tell. So thank you all for listening. We're on a slightly different tack today, though. See what I did there? As we are heading out sailing with today's guest. Jen Neal has an affinity with the sea that stems from a lifetime spent on the ocean. It's no exaggeration to say that a love of the sea runs in her veins. Like her father and grandfather before her, she is now a coxswain, or captain, of the lifeboat on the Isle of Man, directing search and rescue operations for hundreds of stranded boats and people every year. Jen was the first female coxswain on the island, the original home of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, a much-loved British establishment, and only the fourth female coxswain nationwide. If you've been to the seaside in the UK, you may well have seen the lifeguards of the RNLI in their yellow t-shirts and red shorts, very Baywatch, manning the lifeguard stations all around our coastline. Chances are you may also have spotted a lifeboat station on your travels. But have you ever met anyone who actually goes out there in the dead of night to rescue others? Perhaps not. Jen is also a successful businesswoman, having set up her own sailing school at the age of 25. She's a coach and an international sailor who has raced all over the world representing Great Britain. Jen runs an annual This Girl Can Sailing Weekend aimed at getting women and girls to try sailing and is passionate about continuing to increase opportunities across the lifeboats and beyond. In 2017, on her second crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, she taught herself celestial navigation, the art and science of navigating via the sun, the moon and the stars, just as they did in the days of Captain Cook and Christopher Columbus. She is certainly a woman of many talents. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about the RNLI? Obviously, people who've been to the beach in the UK may well have seen lifeguards around. But for anyone who's abroad or hasn't really heard much about them, can you just tell us what you do and what your role is? Yeah, so the RNLI is the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, which is an organisation that's been around for a couple hundred years in the UK now. It actually was started where I live here on the Isle of Man by a chap called... Yeah, yeah, uh, chap... (laughs) chap called Sir William Hillary set up the um, RNLI originally and the first lifeboat station was on the Isle of Man so we have quite a big connection with the RNLI. Yeah definitely. Um, and it's an organisation, it's a charity so the crew are all volunteers and the organisation is there to uh, help save lives at sea basically so if anyone gets into distress around the coastline of the UK or Ireland uh, the RNLI would be the service that would be re- 
called to respond to help you. And presumably you do end up dealing with quite a lot of you know injured or sick people. Do you guys all have medical training as well or do you have doctors on board or what? We have both actually. We do have a doctor connected to the station that we can call and take on a shout with us. Um, but also all the crew are very highly trained um, with the RNLI casualty care courses. So we carry an awful lot of equipment on board and we're all quite highly trained for that as well, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. So um, I heard you saying before that uh, you have a 10-minute um, aim to be launching the boat, so 10 minutes from the moment the phone rings until the moment that you get in the water, which I thought was incredibly fast. Like, as a, I work as a vet in my in my proper job, and the idea of, like, being somewhere within 10 minutes, just, like, it takes me a few minutes to wake up and get out of bed when I have to go somewhere. <laughs> the night. I thought that was an incredible, incredible response time, Jen. It is a really quick response time. The RNLI, I think, if you are within 10 miles of the coast, aim to be with you within 30 minutes if you're in trouble so it is quite a quick response time and you're quite right from our pager going to our boat dropping its mooring and leaving we're on a nine minute we aim for a nine minute response time so um all of our crew live or work within three miles of the lifeboat station okay um and yeah as you say when the pager goes in the middle (laughs) of the night it's loud it's annoying and uh, there's no kind of Oh, just stay here for another minute. You're up and you're finding your warm gear and you're getting out the door as quick as you can. But there's that real moment of disorientation, isn't there, when it goes in the middle of the night and you're like, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find if I'm in a deep sleep and the phone goes, it just takes me like 10 seconds to actually work out who the hell I am and where I am and what I'm doing. Yeah, I like say, these, these pages wake you up in an instant panic. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been um, in the RNLI for and how did you get into it in the first place? I joined the boat in 2005 so I'm coming up 14 years I've been with the boat now. Um, It's it's always been something really close to me. I I grew up a few houses away from the lifeboat station and my dad was on the lifeboat for as long as I can remember and my granddad before him. My two of my uncles did a stint on the boat as well so it's always been quite close to my family and then um, I moved back to the island and set up my business which kind of showed that I was here and committed to the island. Uh, so they would accept me onto the crew because you've got to do a year's probationary period to prove that okay. you stick it and that you can turn up and you've got the commitment. So as soon as I was settled here, I signed up for the boat. And yeah, 14 years later, I started at kind of junior, uh, sorry, junior crew level deckhand and then kind of gradually worked my way up through navigator and um, I'm a coxswain now so I get to be in charge of the boat sometimes which is quite cool. (laughs) And you were the first female coxswain in the Isle of Man and then only the fourth one in the UK is that right? Yeah that's correct Uh, first on the island fourth in the UK and I think I'm the first on our particular class of lifeboat which is the Trent class lifeboat. Generally I think around about 10% of the crew members are women um, although that figure is increasing there's also there's the all-weather lifeboats, which I'm the coxswain for, but there's also inshore lifeboats as well, which tend to do shorter coastal rescues. And there's about 40 female helms on the inshore boats versus okay. four on the all-weather <laughs> boats. So generally, most stations have got two or three female crew members. But we uh, we recently did a recruitment drive last summer uh, to get a load of new crew. And we're actually up to, we've got six females on station now, so... If you think about a sea rescue and you're picturing a huge storm, massive waves crashing on deck in pitch black conditions, searchlights overhead from a helicopter perhaps, 
A traditional image of those involved would be tough, burly, weather-beaten fishermen and sailors out there helping others in their time of need. The modern image of the RNLI strives to be much more diverse and inclusive, but I put it to Jen that there's still quite a male image surrounding the lifeboat crews. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think back in the day when um, Sir William Hillary started the organisation, we were in the days of sail and oars, as you quite rightly say. So mm. so having the physical strength to be able to get the boats to the people in distress certainly played a big part in it. And it, it's been sort of male dominated from, from that right through, I suppose. But but these days with the sort of changes in technology, changes in boats, changes in equipment, it's not really about physical strength anymore and actually technique, knowledge, experience and skills um, play a lot bigger role than just physical brute force these days. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, you're kind of often heading out to sea at a point when things are taking a turn for the worse, I guess. <laughs> like, um, is most of what you do um in sort of rescues in very bad weather like would that make up the mainstay of your work Jen? it's it's quite varied to be honest because when the weather's nice okay. that's that's the time you get people going out with their leisure boats their small power boats their fishing boats paddle boards windsurfing sailing so it, you get different kind of calls if the weather's good you're more likely to respond to something like that whereas in, if the weather's bad it's more likely to be commercial fishing boat or a ferry or missing persons or something like that so it it is very varied really yeah 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 and what are the more sort of memorable have you got any good examples of like pretty memorable rescues that you've done (laughs) Um, one of my most memorable rescues it wasn't actually the rescue itself but it was the trip home that sticks in my mind um, I, I realised recently it was my, it was my first ever shout on the inshore lifeboat. So I was on there as a crew member, and um, it was middle of the night. It was dark, um, and we'd been called to um, a uh, some people were having an issue on a mooring in a harbour around the corner from us. We'd been called there to help transport some people to to this boat and then get the casualty off the boat and back ashore. And that was all fine. We dealt with all of that. But when we came home, we had to go around this headland where the tide had changed against us in the time that we'd been there doing the rescue. (laughs) And so now it's pitch black. It's the middle of the night and we're in an area with tidal overfall. So we've got ridiculously rough seas. Um, We're just hanging on to this little boat. And it's one of those circumstances that you would never, ever normally find yourself in. You know, what are we doing here? The only way we could judge the wave height was above our heads every now and then you would see a white flash of where the top of the wave was breaking. (laughs) So that was really quite exciting um and i can remember we had a the big lifeboat was with us as well we called that back we were like guys can you just slow down and let us sit behind you so you're cutting a channel through for us it's like Um, the the lifeboat has to be rescued themselves (laughs) (laughs) so that was quite exciting and really i think it's just like yeah the circumstances that you find yourselves in each shout is memorable for its own reasons but normally it's like what are we doing here (laughs) (laughs) oh brilliant and um in terms of kind of encouraging people into the lifeboat services, obviously, if people live near the coasts, um, you you don't need any, I find it surprising you don't have to have any boating experience or like maritime experience to go in. Is that right, Jen? Yeah, that's right. And we were talking about this the other day, actually, on how few of our crew members are now from a professional seafaring background. Back in the day, it used to be the local fishermen that would man the boat. Um, and these days, 
say there's only a handful of us from a diving or fishing or sailing background on the boat now. So you don't have to have any real maritime background. And one of the things that the RNLI is very good at is a competency-based training system. So you can join join the crew having never been on a boat before, and we will talk you through how to get dressed in the gear that we wear, what all the gear is for, how to work your life jacket, take you on the boat and just start from yeah, this is the front, this is the back, and work from there, really. So the RNLI is very, very good at training the volunteer crew members that turn up. And they also have um, a lifeboat college down in Poole. So it was a kind of purpose-built facility for crews to go and do training down there as well. So they do some pretty intensive kind of week-long courses um, based out of Poole and in Poole Harbour for all of the various different skills and competencies you need to be on the lifeboat crew. And um, just kind of branching out into other bits of your career, because you've got uh, what I think might be quite trendily referred to as a portfolio career um, <laughs> in terms of in terms of you've got your finger in quite a few pies, Jen. Um, so you own and run your own sailing school as well. And I was loving a bit of your This Girl Can sailing weekends as well, kind of encouraging girls into sailing in the Isle of Man. Can you tell me a little bit about how you set that business up and and what you do with that as well? Yeah, so um, I studied my degree in maritime leisure management in Southampton, and I graduated from there back in two thousand and two. Um, and my mum's quite proud these days. She says I'm one of the few people that's still using their degree for their job. <laughs> so I have this, this background in maritime leisure management, which was affectionately known as deck chair studies when we were at college. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great degree that does. <laughs> And it was back then that I kind of formulated this business plan for this sailing school in Port Erin on the Isle of Man, which is where I live. And 2006, I came home and um, set that business up. So we run a Royal Yachting Association recognised training centre for dinghy sailing, power boating and navigation courses. And we hire out kayaks and paddleboards as well. So kind of the small water sports centre in one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think. <laughs> yeah. And actually, um, the, I've never been, to, I'm slightly ashamed to say I've never been to the Isle of Man, but um, it is kind of widely recognised as being an incredibly beautiful place that is quite overlooked in the UK, really. Yeah, we try not to tell too many people about it. <laughs> no, I mean, right now, May, June is definitely the best time to be here. It's spring, all the trees are coming into flower and uh, we've got little maritime visitors in form of basking sharks just making an appearance again I went out in the boat and saw one the other night so that's quite exciting I love this time of year here I was actually um, having a little chuckle to myself because when I put your name into Google when I was researching this interview <laughs> the very first thing that comes up is a, is a headline in a newspaper about um, you know sailing sailors chasing down sharks in the Isle of Man and I was like, what and I was like oh it's a basking yeah. shark it's not going to eat you um, but yeah they look amazing absolutely massive as well aren't they they are massive and it is quite amazing like you say you're not really exaggerating when the shark was actually there was one kind of getting involved in our sailing sessions last summer and they do it quite frequently and of course they're completely harmless but they make you feel yeah. very very small when you're close to them <laughs> <laughs> so cool such an amazing thing to be able to take the kids to as well yeah like, it is, it is it, yeah quite amazing life experiences so yeah so we've been running this um sailing school since 2006 now so oh my word this is year 13 we're just coming into um and I was 25 when I set it up and to be honest I didn't really see myself being uh, nearly 40 and still there so um so yeah, we're quite proud with, with with how the business has gone really and 
yeah, we've trained hundreds and hundreds of kids to sail over the time. We set up um, the Manx Youth Sailing Squad. So I used to race um, dinghies back in my teens. I used to race for the British uh, sailing team. And what I really wanted to do was give kids from the island opportunities that I never really had because I always traveled from here on my own. I never was part of a team from the island or anything back in the days when I was doing it. So what I wanted to do was get some of our top young sailors, train them up to a level that we could take them away to a competition in the UK, but also importantly to take them there as a team together. So the first year we took our team there, one of our lads won the first race at the wow. um, Inland Championships in the UK. <laughs> and that kind of started the ball for the uh, Manx U Sailing Squad as well. So that's been running, uh, this will be its 11th year now. And over 11 years, I think we've had about 40 kids through the squad. And we've trained two world champions, um, one women's world champion. We've had kids sitting in the top three, top four, top five consistently at World Championships. And um, that's another pretty awesome thing that's kind of come out of the Isle of Man too. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Because you think about, you know, when you're a kid, if you were going by yourself, you know, whilst it's still fun and undoubtedly you're doing something that you enjoy, a little bit lonely, I would imagine, to kind of disappear by yourself to competitions and things. And so much more it's an amazing opportunity for them to have other people around and have the support from someone like you that's got all the experience and and the, the kind of amazing coaching skills that you've got. Yeah, it's it's, it's really great. And I'd say the, the brief was teach them to race, take them to one competition in the UK each year. That was the plan. And uh, <laughs> it snowballed beyond all expectations. And like I say, they're taking themselves off to the European Championships, the World Championships, uh, National Championships and coming home with really good results each time. And we're really lucky. That's um, been funded through private sponsorships. So we've got RL360, FIM Capital and um, Appleby Global all supporting the squad from the, from the island as well, which we couldn't do without them. So actually, when you think about your kind of skills and, and your career, you know, you're as well as running your own business, you're getting funding for things, which is can, you know reportedly often quite difficult to kind of go and pitch for sponsorship and kind of capital investment and that kind of thing and you know it's it's amazing when you, you sort of say you set your business up when you're 25 it's quite young to be then building a business to that degree Jen <laughs> it kind of you made me smile when you said portfolio career because I've, <laughs> I've never even heard of that term before I'm like, what do you mean by <laughs> it's basically my mum says to me that that she's like well, that just basically means you're a jack of all trades <laughs> you'll turn your hand to anything and I'm like yeah that's probably true yeah that so. makes sense I think a lot of that comes from living on an island and you kind of have to be resourceful you know um, and you're running a lot of kit, boats, sails, engines, and when stuff breaks, you quickly learn how to fix it. So you do the set. So you obviously we were just chatting before about you run the sailing school for kind of six, seven months of the year, and then the rest of the year disappear off to sunnier climates. I was loving the fact that you were like, oh yeah, I just I just go to the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, what do you do there, Jen, while you're away? Uh, I must backtrack a little bit, really. It all sounds very glamorous, and yes, these, these days I'm sure it's I really do, hard work. No, no, these days I do go to the Caribbean, but actually, <laughs> I started my working life in a, a scallop processing factory, opening cleaning, queenies and scallops for a living, and. Uh, the first few winters that I started my own business, I was still doing that in the winters. <laughs> I was working in fish factories, opening 
crabs and queenies and scallops and things. So, so I've I started from yeah this aspirational I want this business, but I was also doing a lot of hard graft in the background just to keep uh, reef over my head for the first few years. Uh, I also had a collie dog for ten years, and he was my shadow, and I lost him four years ago. And since then, that's kind of enabled me to go okay, I can leave the island and look for work elsewhere. So that's that's the background to what does sound like a very glamorous lifestyle now. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah people say oh you, you're so lucky and I'm like well I'm lucky but I, I, I've worked for this as well yeah. yeah definitely um so yeah I work for um, a yacht charter company called Horizon Yacht Charters they're based in the British Virgin Islands and I work there as a, a briefer and as a skipper uh, and yeah it is awesome so that it basically the job there is people arrive to charter a yacht for their holiday and my job is to meet them greet them welcome them on the boat show them around the boat systems and then drive them out of the harbour and pack them off on the on their way to having a lovely holiday I give them all the best places to go for drinks and moorings overnight in the in, in the islands and occasionally get to go out and skipper as well so so yeah it's pretty cool that's what I do in the winter Oh, lovely. Excellent. And you've sailed across the Atlantic twice now. And the second time you did that, you taught yourself uh, how to navigate from the stars, the sun and the moon, um, which is also known as celestial navigation. Can you give me a little bit of background about how that came about and how you set off on that trip, <laughs> really knowing what you were doing? I, I kind of really like this... Um, uh, initiative in this in this one, Jen. I have to say, <laughs> um, yeah. The first time I crossed the Atlantic, it was just after I'd finished college, and I was very green to it then. So that was just a good sort of crewing experience to get it under my belt. And I've always wanted to do it again. And so, so that time you just went with a, a gang of other people on a boat as a crew member, did yeah, you? We yeah, we were on a forty-three foot yacht that was uh, privately owned, and that we were with the owner who was getting it from canaries uh, across to the winter uh, caribbean for the winter and that's quite a traditional route to follow the trade winds from the canary islands in november over to the caribbean um around about christmas time so there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of boats out there at that time although you rarely rarely see any of them um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah did that when i first um finished college and then i've always wanted to do it again and a couple of years ago i uh, found a catamaran that was looking for crew to take the boat across um so I signed on to that boat and I thought right I'm going to teach myself celestial navigation there is a qualification you can take so within the sort of skippers qualifications through the Royal Yachting Association you can take your yacht master offshore qualification which I did when I was 24 um, and then up from that is your yacht master ocean qualification which means you can take any boat anywhere in the world basically under 24 meters so I kind of I've been a bit a bit geeky and I was always fascinated by the stars and the old traditional techniques of navigation and you know how the Polynesians used to get around and Columbus Magellan and you know how they how they and Captain Cook how they charted the world in those days how they drew the maps in those days having none of the technology that we have now has just always blown my mind I was really really interested in it so I decided I was going to have a go at the celestial navigation and I, I signed up for an online theory course to begin with, which I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll learn it online first and then I'll go out to sea and practice it on the sea was the intention. But I didn't really get on with the online course. I found it really difficult and it didn't it didn't flow. It didn't really connect. So in the end, I was like, right, oh, I've got a sextant. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've got some books. I've got three books and I've got all of the tables and almanacs that I need. And my kit bag weighed a ton just from the small library that I had to carry <laughs> around with me. And, uh, and yeah, I was just like, stupidity and determination really I suppose I've I've set myself this task and I'm, I'm going to do it so we set off and initially I was measuring all kinds of things sun stars like taking angles making sights writing it all down having really no idea what to do with it and then just trying to go through the instruction books that I had follow the instructions do the maths and work it out so we also had um, GPS on the boats. <laughs> the other guys on the boat have uh, basically got the GPS set to drive the boat to Antigua on the computer if we wanted it to do so. <laughs> okay. While I'm so sat- they weren't completely reliant on you. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not reliant on me at all. <laughs> so that, they're looking at the technology end of it and I'm sat at the other end of the boat with a sextant and a calculator, a pencil and some paper going slightly insane. Um, but the advantage of that was meant that I could take sites and I could come up with an answer and then I could compare it to the GPS so I could see whether I was close to things. Um, And that was brilliant because initially I was getting this consistent error and every time it was the error was the same amount. So I ended up going from what our position on the GPS was and working the maths backwards to find my error. And once I'd done that, I was like, okay, we are where, well, I am, I think we are where, well, we are where I think I am. <laughs> um, and so I ended up, I think it was eight days before I'd finally got a plot on a chart going, we are here, I'm confident we are here. And once I'd done that, I could then work backwards of all the sites I'd previously taken whilst still working forwards and actually almost genuinely kind of navigating the boat as, as we were going. So how did they, how did they used to do it? Like, you know, if you were Captain Cook or whoever, like, and you have got, I don't even know what a sextant is, Jenna, I hate to admit it. <laughs> like, how do you do that? Like, what do you look at and what do you measure and, and how do you work out where the hell you are? Because if you're surrounded by ocean, you, it just must be completely bewildering. It seems completely <laughs> bewildering. Someone like me, you've got no idea what that would entail. To be honest, I think actually being on the ocean and trying to navigate in that in that fashion was what helped me because you know before you start worrying about the the stars and the sun or anything like that, you know roughly what speed you're traveling at, and you know from your compass roughly what direction you're heading in. Okay, so you can yeah, yeah. you can take the chart out and say, well, I, sh- I I've traveled this way for this amount of time. I should be roughly in this area of the ocean. Okay, and that is it's called dead reckoning, and that is pr- pretty much the traditional method of how people used to get across the oceans. Um, and then we started adding stars and sun measurements to it. So, sextant basically is a really clever device that allows you to measure the angle between the height of the sun above the horizon and your position in really really simple terms. So, measure the sun or the moon or a planet or the stars. Um, so you can take a site, it gives you a number, you do some maths, and that gives you the angle between where you are and whatever celestial body you've just taken your site okay, from. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so if it's the sun, it's basically like saying, well, if the sun's a really, really, really tall lighthouse and the angle between me and that lighthouse is this, I must be somewhere on this rather large circle around that object. I can measure my angle to that object so I know where I am on that circle. Um, But then that circle's massive. That circle covers a lot of the globe. So we know we're roughly on a line of a big circle somewhere. (laughs) And it's it's half past 10 in the morning. We're somewhere roughly close to this position 
on this line. And then we wait till noon and then we have to measure the sun again at noon. And at noon is the only time we can find out how far north or south of the equator we are, because that's uh-huh. when the sun's at its highest. We can say, OK, we are definitely at this latitude from the angle we've just measured. So you could work out roughly where you were east or west, north, south in the morning and then wait till lunchtime to go, right, OK, we, we are here at this latitude. Um, so that was using the sun. But then as we went on and, and I got the hang of it, I figured out that you can also use the stars to navigate. And using the stars was amazing. So you could sit there at twilight at dawn or dusk and you'd have to go through this process, going through the tables and the books, and it would tell you which stars to find, look at and measure at this particular time of day. So you'd take your angles on seven seven different stars if you could. And what you'd end up with on your chart in front of you is a load of lines crossing over each other. And in theory, you should be in the middle of that triangle where all those lines cross. And you could do that within about an hour from taking the sites to going, we are here on the chart. Whereas with the sun, it was a much longer process having to take two or three sites during the day. So by the time I got to the stars for the last thousand miles of the trip, where my line and the GPS line are on the chart, they're pretty much on top of each other. So the accuracy from using the stars was really, really cool. I was really impressed with it. And um, I mean, it was actually quite interesting time in chatting to you because last week's podcast um, had an astronomer on. Oh wow! Who was um, talking about a lot about obviously the stars and and looking up. She started um, doing astronomy when she was at sea, working on boats, oh. and um, and just talking about the kind of amazing sights that you get when you're out at sea you know looking up at the stars and you know obviously the lack of light pollution and everything and um I bet you've seen some kind of amazing not just with the stars but just in general as well I always think the kind of experiences you have when you're in the open ocean there's a temptation for people to think it's quite boring but actually there's kind of so much happening isn't there it is incredible and you've just given me goosebumps just thinking about being at at night in the ocean Uh, night sailing is absolutely my favorite favorite thing and you're so right that the absence of light pollution out on the ocean is just incredible you can see it's 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 impossible to describe really the the depth of the sky and how many (laughs) how many stars there are out there but also so bright as well we had one night in the Atlantic we had absolutely no, no wind at all and it was so still that the the stars were reflecting off the ocean you know like fairy lights do in in puddles or on the beach or something but the brightest of stars had their own individual reflections on the ocean it was just stunning and um yeah shooting stars are really really common i was counting maybe like 20 on a four-hour watch or something like that and it yeah it's just incredible i say i love it night sailing is my favorite that sounds so cool and um i always love to talk to people about what they've learned from failures during their career have you had anything where you've either made a mistake or something's happened you know within what you're doing that you've thought was pretty bad at the time but has maybe turned into something positive that you've learned from oh gosh working on the sea There's plenty of mistakes. It's a bit like working with animals or children. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I work <laughs> on the sea and with children both together. <laughs> uh, oh my word! There are so many things that catch you out. It's so many times that it goes wrong. And to be honest, you can find yourself. Um, I do. I do. Um, I, I weirdly enjoy offshore yacht racing as well, and. It's those times where you are sleeping for four hours and then back on watch for four hours. To be honest, you never really sleep for four hours. 
you're in a race, you're in the elements, you're wet, you're cold, you're tired. Um, and those are the times I think that you learn the most about yourself. So when things go wrong, when the chips are down, especially when things go wrong on the ocean, um, that's when you learn that, you know, no one's coming to help you. You've got these problems and you've got to sort them out. And I think that's where you, I kind of, you learn where your strengths are and that you, you can't give up when, when things go wrong, you've got to pick yourself up and fight it and, and keep going because no one else is going to come and do it for you. I think is probably the biggest thing I've learned from all of the things that have gone wrong is you've just got to go, okay, that went wrong. Why did it go wrong? How can we prevent that from happening again? Pick it up, get going and sort it out. And um, and what about people who've kind of inspired you in your career, Jen? Like, um, obviously, you're giving back a huge amount to your community now and, and mentoring young women coming through and, and young guys by the sounds of things. Have you had anyone who's really kind of helped or encouraged you with what you've done in your life? I think originally the whole kind of maritime nautical sailing career was inspired by my uncle. My mum's brother um, competed in the Whitbread Round the World race, he did two of those when, when I was a young kid and he did oh, more cool. when I was in my teens. So so as a child, I just thought that was quite normal that racing <laughs> around the world is something that that people do. Um, so the second race he did, it was the late 80s and there was an all-female boat in that race, which was Tracy Edwards on Maiden. Um, and so again, I'm I'm now a nine, ten year old child going. Well, there's a group of women sailing around the world. This must be completely normal. That's kind of what where I think my inspiration came from as a, as a child. That no, I, I want I want to sail around the world. I want to do the Volvo Ocean Race. I haven't managed it yet, but I have, <laughs> haven't given up on the dream either. But that was I think where it all started from. And then I was born in a sailing community. My family sailed. My dad's a sailor. Uncle's a sailor. Dad on the lifeboat as well. So I, I think they've been my biggest influences and people that I've sort of followed in their footsteps. And then I was really lucky to uh, join a race boat here with a couple of guys who had a very, very long offshore racing career. In fact, they were in the 1979 Fastnet race. That was the big disaster race. Um, so I got to start racing around the Irish sea with, with those guys and they were a huge influence. Um, yeah, Pete and Jeff Hines, wonderful people that kind of really helped me, get offshore and enjoy being out there with those with them and that that really drove me to want to do more as soon as I got away from land and into the ocean I was like this is where I want to be this is my happy place <laughs> it's so refreshing to hear of guys just kind of picking you up and carrying you along without any fuss or any kind of bother about the fact that you're a girl or whether you're going to do it any differently you know I always I think it's always lovely to hear about people who've just taken you under their wing and given you opportunities and encouraged you whoever you are you know because those are the people that actually make massive changes in the community or in people's lives without making a big song and dance about it I guess yeah I think you're absolutely right um sailing's an interesting sport really because I think it's one of the few sports that men and women compete on an equal footing so when you go to a national championship, girls and boys are racing against each other or with each other. There's no men's fleet and women's fleet, and it doesn't really get split until you get to Olympic level in sailing. So it's, I suppose it's one of those sports where it's more normal that, that there is a mixture there, although <laughs> it's there is still um, there's a, some friends of mine were sailing an all-female boat in a regatta in the Caribbean a couple of years ago, and the the race committee looked over the side of the boat and went, are there no guys on that boat? <laughs> With this kind of, what are you doing out here? And then I've been on um, 
training courses before where someone the one of the instructors the trainers has turned out to me and said so uh so is, is your old man on the boat then that kind of inference that I was only on that course as through my family or something and then I had another guy actually who was in my uh, at my training center who also he was a participant on a course who looked at me and I'm, I'm like the managing director of my own business <laughs> looked at me and said so uh, did your old man set this place up for you then god <laughs> I've been in business. I've been here twelve years of my own accord. My dad was convinced this was going to fail after a couple of years, so no, he didn't set this up for me. (laughs) Really? But then, as you say, others like the RNLI crew, the guys on the yachts. There's there's, there's no no um, no there's no difference there at all, really. No, no, and but but it's it's just so infuriating, isn't it? And it's taking along, you know, whatever you do and whoever you are and whatever business you're in, those kind of comments are just you sort of have to shrug them off, don't you, and just keep going. You do have to shrug them off, but it, it's a strange thing. So I was listening to an interview from a lady called Dee Kafari. So she's been around the world on her own, nonstop, the right way the wrong way so with the wind and against the wind she is the skipper of a volvo ocean race boat um and last year so the last time there was a volvo ocean race she was the only female skipper in the race and i was reading an article about her saying she's sitting there with all the other skippers in the race and she still feels like the outsider it's like how is that (laughs) and i was relating that to we had um an inshore lifeboat shout. It was, I think, it was pretty much today last year. Actually, this time last year, um, and I was on the boat with we had three three male crew and me on the boat, and I was at the helm, and we had to tow a yacht off the rocks, um, quite close to the station. And this is kind of what I do in my day job at my training centre all the time. Uh, okay, the yacht was a little bit bigger than what we normally tow, and I'm at the helm of the boat, and these three guys are looking at me, going, "What do you want to do, Jen?" And it, I don't believe that they are actually wanting my opinion. <laughs> so, well, you're all three guys. You must you must know what to do. And it was really just hit me going, going like, no, you have all of the skills, the experience. Why don't you believe that they're actually asking you? And it kind of made me think of that same that interview with Dee Kafari as well. So why is it that even though we've got the skills and the knowledge, actually we're stopping ourselves from believing we can do it? I, I don't know. I really don't know. The old imposter syndrome comes yeah, out to play, doesn't one, it? Yeah. <laughs> I know, but but clearly you are incredibly well respected, you know, and, and three guys wouldn't be sitting there looking at you saying, <laughs> what do you want to do if they didn't think that you yeah, were completely I, I'm starting to understand that now, but it's taken yeah. a long time. <laughs> it takes a long time. It takes a long time. No, I don't know. I think I've just always been driven by my own sort of determination and stubbornness, really. I'm the, the type of person that the more you tell me I can't do something, the more I will do it to prove to you that I can and that's probably what's got me where I am today <laughs> stupid determined stubbornness going I've said I'm going to do it or you said I can't do it I'm going to show you that I can I love this good on you Jen if you happen to be in the Isle of Man in June then Jen is holding her this girl can sailing weekend there on the 29th and 30th her sailing school is seventh wave IOM and I'll put the web address on the show page If you're interested in joining or volunteering with the RNLI, either on the lifeboats or doing something else, then there is loads of info at rnli.org. Contrary to popular opinion, you do not have to live near the sea as there are opportunities fundraising and in the community all over the country. So do go and have a look. Their new campaign, hashtag respect the water, was launched recently. So if you're heading down to the beach this summer, then do have a look and help to avoid being one of those that might need the lifeguards or the lifeboats this year. 
Also, if you're interested in sailing, then have a listen back to my interview with Volvo Ocean Racer Abby Ela. And if you like the sound of the stars and the moon, then I'd encourage you to listen to astronomer Jane Green, who appeared on the podcast two weeks ago. We'll be back next week with the next in our series of Career Skills podcasts, so do join me then. But that is all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast useful or interesting, then please do tell a friend as we are always keen for new listeners. You can rate and review us on iTunes. And as ever, we are on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling. In the meantime, have a great week. Bye, guys.